Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Randa Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Diane Parkes to tell us all about her book titled English Food, A Social History of England Told Through the Food on Its Tables, published at the end of 2022 by William Collins. This is a fabulous book and does exactly what it says on the blurb. It really will change the way you view your food and understand your past, whether or not you're English, in fact. Um, This book talks about all sorts of different kinds of food, what it has to do with class, gender, tradition, uh, religion, the kind of stories that we tell ourselves today, the stories that we tell ourselves about what food is, what food food should be, what we should be eating and why. Um, And really, there's just so many epic things about this book. And so, Diane, thank you so much for being with us to tell us all about it. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation and I'm grateful that you thought of me. Thank you as well for your very kind words about the book. Well, before we dive into the very exciting book, I mean, you can tell by now I'm quite excited. Um, I will ask you first, however, to introduce yourself a little bit to our audience and explain why you decided to write this. Sure. Um, My name is Diane Perkis. I'm a professor of English literature at the University of Oxford and a fellow and tutor and director of studies in English at Keble College. So that's all my lovely accreditation. At this point, some people might be saying, why is a professor of English writing a history book? Well, both my original degrees are in both history and English. So I often write history, but teach English. I find history exciting to research, and I find English thrilling to teach. Why on earth did I embark on food history, though? Um, Yeah, it started with a conversation with my fantastic editor at William Collins. My most recent book was about the English Civil War. And one of the reviewers really picked up on what I'd said about food in wartime and the way that historical events like civil wars or um, international wars affect people's food choices, sometimes for very many years, sometimes for centuries afterwards. And my lovely editor, Arabella, said, wow, that sounds like a book. Is that your sequel? Um, And I thought, yeah, actually, this could be a thing because I love cooking, I love baking. And I always find food history, I'm going to be truthful here, a tiny bit disappointing because it's mostly the history of a very tiny number of people and what they eat, people who wear furs and crowns. Um, And so when people previously published histories of English food or French food or whatever. It's typically just the food eaten by a very tiny minority of people. And I always want to know what more ordinary, less titled people eat. It's wrong to say that we can learn about what ordinary people eat from what Henry VIII ate. Um, So I wanted to find out about less less rich food. Um, and, And that became my project. At one point, I applied for a research grant, and one of the assessors, I certainly hope you're listening, assessor, said, Perkis could work for 5,000 years and not touch the bottom of the sources she would need to read. <laughs> um, so that's just a funny story, but it's, it, he wasn't completely wrong either. 
um, it did involve a huge amount of reading and a lot of it was sort of luckily stumbling on things rather than systematically mining a particular archive um, because I also didn't want it to be a history of recipes, which is another thing that most food books do. I wanted it actually to try to track what people really ate for breakfast. So this is exactly why I found the book so fascinating, because these are exactly the kinds of questions I've had for years of sort of, okay, it's cool to read about the Tudor feasts, but I wouldn't have eaten that. I mean, what else is going on here? Um, And some of it sounds quite odd. So thank you for kind of giving us that backstory and um, very much an insight, I think, to listeners about what's so unique and fascinating about the book you have put together, which is exactly my next question. My first look after being excited about the title was at the table of contents and I couldn't imagine how you could go through so many sources and obviously you couldn't include every food so how did you manage to go through all of these thousands of years worth of material and decide what to include and in what sort of organized fashion? It's a really good question. Initially, I wanted to organize it solely around meals, so have it organized as breakfast, lunch, dinner, tea, supper, and in a way that organization, there's a shadow of that remaining. But what it ended up being about was the foods that are most often mentioned in the kinds of sources that I find interesting. So the reason I don't write, for example, on beef is that it doesn't have a very long history in the English diet. And what history it does have, it's basically a group of particularly club-oriented gentlemen in the 17th and 18th century, making it kind of a fetish food about nationalism. So the idea that it was going to be a section and the roast beef of Old England was one of the things I was going to have to deal with just came to me to seem wrong. By contrast, apples just appear in every food source from the very earliest ones to the very, very recent ones. So that was my criterion for what foods to include. Do they start from the very beginning of records and carry on through to the present in some form? rather than being a sort of single event food, because that's, again, I think a foible of many food histories, because as you say, many of them focus on royal feasts. It's interesting to write about roast swan up to a point, but very few of the readers of the book are going to have eaten roast swan. And in that sense, it doesn't tie in the history of eating with what people eat today. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to connect that up and make a kind of chain of thinking so that people as they ate their breakfast could be conscious of what Samuel Pepys had eaten for breakfast and what a medieval labourer might have eaten. In fact, that's what drove my next question to you, um, is something that after reading your book, I found myself looking down at my plate and sort of wondering, um, and I'd love for you to discuss it, to share the knowledge on this with the listeners a little bit, starting with breakfast, um, at least in the UK, in England, full English breakfast, right? That's a thing you can order in posh restaurants, in cafes. That's very much still a feature of what normal people eat. But how English, how old and how traditional is what we'd see on the menu as a full English breakfast, really? In a nutshell, it's 19th century. Most of the things (laughs) we think of as our national food ways are 19th century. 
Um, so the oldest bit of it, and in many respects, the most English bit of it is toast. Um, the English invented toast. Toast is our gift to the world. So the next time you make yourself a piece of toast to have with soup, that's part of our food culture. And it's a vital part of our food culture. It's very labor intensive in the past because before pop-up toasters, you had literally to hold a fork to the fire. Um, people certainly did eat a breakfast that included some of the elements that we associate with English breakfast from an early period. And one element that certainly does resonate down the years is bacon. Um, poor people ate bacon. The reason they were eating bacon and not fresh pork was because they needed to preserve the meat so that they could go on dining on the pig they had killed at Martinmas in November for the whole of the autumn and the winter. Um, but they wouldn't just have eaten it at breakfast. They would probably have eaten it for a special supper as well. Um, eggs. I look very carefully at whether eggs really crop up in early breakfast. They do very occasionally, but it's very unusual to find eggs and bacon together. And there's probably a common sense re reason for that, which is that you probably couldn't afford both. Um, and you only needed one source of protein. It's when we hit the 19th century that we start getting these amazing country house breakfasts that really are served to the upper middle classes and better, that involve a huge range of different kinds of protein and also toast and marmalade. And that, people believed at the time, was a Scottish breakfast and not an English one, hilariously. So these immense kind of protein, masculine feasts of umami-tasting food were associated by the Victorians themselves with Scotland and not with England at all. So hilariously, perhaps restaurants should relabel their signs and call it a Scottish breakfast. And call it 19th century, not yeah. traditional. Yeah, absolutely. Which is yeah. fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. Well, given that... Please continue. No, I was just about to say, I mean, another very English thing that's really Scottish is marmalade. Uh, another feature of the breakfast Tell table. Tell us more. Like an, elder, an old feature of the old-fashioned breakfast table is marmalade. So if you go into Fortnum's or a posh grocer, there'll still be jars of marmalade. But interestingly, it's not liked to the extent that it once was in a really interesting way that probably connects with our overall food taste. The other characteristic of these big umami meals of the 19th century was that they often involved tastes that we would find quite bitter, like chicory or even venison can have quite a bitter aftertaste. So that leads to a tolerance for the kind of very astringent marmalade that the Victorians liked. But if you've ever tried serving that kind of marmalade to a 21st century breakfast group, people often really don't like it at all um, and will pivot awkwardly mm. away from it towards something more sugary like jam. Mm. And so our Scottish. taste has changed over history. Our, our, our norms for taste and our expectations about how things will taste are also subject to historical change. Mm. 
And yet some things seem remarkably consistent across time, um, one of which, staying on the idea of toast being so important and bread, is the idea of golden crusted white bread. Um, I know that that's very much sort of a desirable thing now, and I was surprised to find in the book that that being kind of the peak of the bread pyramid goes back much, much further than I thought. So where do we get this ideal from and why is it so consistent? Arguably, we get it from the Romans. Um, So, I mean, yes, it could hardly be very much older. Um, The Romans introduced wheat to Britain um, on a large scale. Previously, virtually all wheat in Britain would have been imported. And I actually talk about some evidence from an archaeological site in the Solent of wheat being imported um, really in, in very early medieval, um, pre-medieval times, almost before the Roman conquest. So it's not something that you naturally associate with the English climate. And it's a marginal crop, even in the medieval warm, because wheat actually normally prefers a much hotter climate than the British Isles normally enjoy. So it was probably associated by the Romans with home food in the era of the Roman Empire. The Sahara was the great brain brain basket of the Roman Empire, a bit like Ukraine today. And as a result, the Romans were used to enjoying really very white, white bread made solely from wheat. And like very many people traveling abroad even today, they weren't comfortable adjusting to the kind of actually probably wrong to describe it even as bread, the kind of grain, cooked grain product that the British were used to, which was typically something involving rye and oats. And it would have been not a loaf shape, but something more like a pancake or an oat cake. So like everyone else, they wanted to bring their home food with them. um, And they introduced the wheat crop. Um, And it became associated with the ruling class, in part because in order to make white bread, it involves a huge amount of labor. An awful lot of value in food is to do with the number of people who've had to work on it. So to make white wheat and bread, you have to bolt the flour several times. And it's wasteful because you're throwing away some edible elements of, um, of the grain that a poorer person might actually want to eat. Um, so it becomes a, a satisfying kind of indulgence for the Romans and therefore for their successors. And this then follows through to the Middle Ages when you have the top table um, eating what were called manchets um, and pandaman, which are a bit like brioche, actually. They're meant to sit in your hands, so they're like a small roll rather than like a huge great loaf. And as part of that they are not only white, they are enriched. Interestingly, early recipes for French bread in Britain are also for enriched bread. So they're for bread made with milk, bread made with butter, not just a plain dough made with salt and water and yeast. And so there's this ongoing association with tender white bread and posh treat food that then just gets amplified further and further as the 17th century really takes to buns, um, and particularly to Chelsea buns and to what are called wigs, 
as food that they want to eat for breakfast. So that pushes aside the idea of a loaf of bread as a food that you associate with goodness and replaces it with a food that's probably stuffed with imported things, including sugar and imported citrus fruit. And increasingly, that kind of bread, which is very light and fluffy and white, is normalized as the most desirable kind, even if it's not the kind most people are eating. Mm, absolutely fascinating to think about just how long a history that particular um, type of bread has had uh, and how, how widespread it is. Kind of even today, people seek that out, which is you know one of the many things that's fascinating about the book. Staying on the idea of breakfast, but using it as moving us through the day, because any English person would probably agree that tea is something to be had at breakfast and continue throughout the day. One does not stop having tea really at oh, any certainly point. certainly not, no. Um, exactly, right? England is massively obsessed with tea. I mean, you could probably say other places are too, but no one would really argue with the English being obsessed. And yet most other places drink coffee or drink tea and coffee like they're not this obsessed so why are the english so incredibly obsessed with tea especially because as i learned from the book there was a moment for coffee in england oh yeah very much so yeah ironically coffee really took our food culture by storm and very suddenly at that as the term storm implies in the mid-17th century, people went from a breakfast that largely included a lump of protein and a mug of seriously real ale to a breakfast that they had earlier in the day that consisted, again, typically of coffee and one of those sweet enriched buns I was talking about a minute ago. And yet it didn't last um, in part because coffee shops became very controversial places. Charles II actually tried to ban coffee shops because he came to believe that they were nests of sedition where people discussed politics too much. Alexander Pope has this wonderful line in The Rape of the Lock, coffee that makes the politician wise and see through all things with his half-closed eyes. And the monarchic government decided they didn't really want everybody to feel like a politician and that it might not be a good thing. So one of the things that then happened was the duty on coffee was always relatively high. It was always a bit of a luxury food. Um, and in the early 19th century, the government cut the duty on tea. This was due really to commercial pressure from the East India Company, who'd been importing tea all the time and encouraging ordinary people to drink it. But it was so expensive because of that same duty that Jane Austen carried the key to the tea cabinet around her neck to keep it safe from the servants as if it were jewellery. That gave it this sort of luxe glow and made everyone want to drink it, but they weren't able to. So when the government dropped the duty and it became available to people, they really embraced it enthusiastically. Meanwhile, coffee was still expensive. So they decided of the two, they were going to go with tea. And of course, British people, I mean, the famous class scale of how tea is prepared, the very phrase builder's tea is significant here. If you have your tea very strong, you're either from the north or you're a builder. If you have your tea where you just wave the tea bag at the tea, you're probably very posh. 
And there's a reason for that. Strong tea with milk and sugar is obviously more likely to nourish you than something that's really just a mug of steaming hot water with some flavoring. Fascinating. And I have so many thoughts now about people in my life and how they drink tea. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to have to yeah. ask them all you sorts of questions. Yeah, absolutely. You can. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, I'd love to ask about uh, something you mentioned earlier, and I think your first answer, the idea that initially you wanted to organize the book around the meals, right? And there's breakfast and lunch, and then wait, hang on, there's all these other ones, right? Tea, supper, dinner, all sorts of other things going on. And I think I'm probably not the only one um, who's read books set in, histor- you know, fiction, historical fiction, where characters are eating dinner at hours of the day that I would not eat my dinner now. Um, And that's always sort of confused me. So could you please explain for us when and why the timing of this meal that we call dinner changed? It's the interesting consistency is that dinner is always the main meal of the day, whatever time you eat it. So it then just depends on what time it works for you to eat your main meal. And that too varies over the centuries because of people's different lifestyles. So what happens is that the invention of reliable evening illumination is the main factor in pushing dinner back later into the evening, particularly in winter. Once people are able to have dinner later, this then affects the timing of all the other meals and leads to the creation of luncheon and indeed what's often called afternoon tea as stopgaps for the lengthening hole in the day between the first meal of the day and the final large main meal. If you have your dinner in the middle of the day, conversely, as people did in the Middle Ages and right through actually typically in in most parts of England in the 19th century, then you don't actually need a large main meal in the evening. And it may be hard for you to get a large main meal in the evening because it's dark. Um, So dinner remains the norm in the middle of the day for most of the history of English food. It later becomes an evening meal. And here again, you can assess your friend's social class a bit. Um, And again, it's regional. People from the north still tend to call the midday meal dinner. And there's a school of thought that the, the very word lunch or luncheon means you're a bit of a posh twit. Um, alternatively, calling the evening meal dinner is typically a sign that you're fairly posh from certainly from the First World War onwards. So as dinner migrates forward, it leaves a hole for more eating earlier in the day. And that creates not only lunch, but also afternoon tea, which is not the same as high tea. I'm sorry, again, all the shops are wrong. I'm so sorry, poor American tourists who are convinced that high tea is the thing you have with scones. It isn't. That's afternoon tea. High tea is the thing you have with a kipper. Um, So it's quite funny. It's being missold and I'm expecting lawsuits. I hope that's useful on dinner. I'm happy to talk some more about the timing of meals because, again, it's sort of dictated by the kind of work you do. For example, fun fact, if you went to grammar school in Shakespeare's day, you had two hours off at lunchtime, having started school at seven in the morning, to go home to eat your midday dinner uh, rather than eating your main meal at school, as later became the case even in non-boarding schools. Um, So that idea that 
uh, dinner was a meal you went home to have was really important in rural areas, particularly people would leave their work in the fields and go and have dinner at home. Or if it was an urgent field task like um, harvesting, then dinner would be brought out to the harvesters so they could eat it on the spot and have a dinner break. Um, and again, all this then starts to govern the kind of food that's available and the kind of food that's being served. If you have to carry it in a basket to your husband, then you're really not likely to be bringing him a pot of stew in a basket. You're much more likely to be bringing him something like preserved meat of some kind with some kind of fruit or vegetable to accompany it. Mm, yeah, no, that makes logical sense. Um, I'm wondering if you could maybe just add a little bit on dinner, um, because one thing I found in the book that seemed quite logical, really, was that as this was changing, as the timing of it was changing, sometimes it was changing fast enough that people would sort of be reacting to it, right? You know, when I was a child, blah, blah, blah about dinner. And it sounded like, given especially the class element, people weren't always happy about these changes. That's right. Exactly right. Because food culture isn't really as much a matter of choice as we tend to like to think it is. We, it, it's often to do with the choices that other people make on our behalf. And those people might, for example, include um, employers who might have a very set finishing time. Um, and they might also include um, your host for a dinner party who might insist that dinner take place later than you're comfortable with in the evening. And a consciousness of change in food culture is often a subject of expressed discomfort. We tend to sort of say to ourselves and to others that we want food culture to remain the same and to value things like Christmas dinner that we see as traditional and the same from year to year. And we tend to become unhappy with overt change, we think. But actually, just the opposite is true. English food culture is insanely flexible and changeable. Indeed, that's our national characteristic, that we are a country that's willing for our national drink to be made from a plant that won't even grow in this country and be flavoured by another plant that won't grow in this country either, i.e. with sugar. Um, we are not actually the stick in the muds that we tend to present ourselves as being. And similarly, we are always very interested in and deeply affected by food novelty in comparison with very many forms of regional food elsewhere in Europe, where there's a sort of fixity, a longing to keep things exactly the same as they were before, that we really on the whole don't share. Hmm. Fascinating. That's actually exactly one of the things that I noticed um, in the section of the book where you were talking about pig products, sausages, bacon, that sort of thing. You already mentioned with breakfast, that's obviously a key element, at least today. And pigs and pig products really do seem to be sort of something that we have a taste for consistently to a degree, except the taste changes within that, which I think is fascinating. So you have this fabulous sentence that I'd love to quote. The story of the pig is the tale of how this wild, fearsome, and energetic beast is tamed by culture, by industry, and by urban taste. Can you take us through how our taste for pig, despite being overall consistent, has nevertheless changed quite a lot over time? Well, the thing about pig is the need to preserve it. 
an awful lot of food culture in the past before refrigeration was how you managed your food supply in such a way as to get through periods where the original creature or product wasn't available. So fruit was preserved much more, dairy was preserved much more. And what is cheese and butter, if not a way of keeping milk fresh or edible at any rate? And in exactly the same way, the pig, bless him, is really the English meat. Um, It's wrong to say it's beef, it's pigs. Actually, we are a nation of pig eating. Um, And the, the problem with the pig is that the rural economy meant that individual families could run a pig as what was sometimes called a panage pig that didn't involve any feeding costs because the pig would forage for its own food in the wood, in a wood pasture. And then when it came round to Martinmas, a butcher would visit a particular village. He would do the rounds of an entire area and kill all the pigs. But you couldn't just eat the pig then and there and then have no pig left for the next five months because there wasn't going to be very much else to eat either. The grain harvest would already have come in in the very early autumn, late summer. What else were you going to be eating to ensure that the vegetables you ate were going to be nutritionally available to you because actually in order to take up the minerals and vitamins in vegetables, you need a small amount of fat and a small amount of protein. So though people didn't know that scientifically, they behaved as if they did and they needed to keep their pig and keep the pig meat preserved. So they tried a variety of methods, initially based around various kinds of cures. And this actually connects with a similar drive to preserve caught fish as herring, which is also a question of a series of cures involving an elaborate soaking system with brine and also with a range of herbs and flavorings. to ensure that the fish doesn't decompose and can be transported. Um, Exactly the same thing happens to the pig, which gives you a flitch of bacon, and the bacon might be smoked alternatively, though that's a slightly later development. Then the other thing you needed to do, though, was make use of every inch of the pig. It wasn't enough just to preserve the big meaty pork bits of the pig. You You also had to find a way of keeping the offal of the pig. And that's where sausages come in. Sausages are a fantastic example of nose-to-tail eating. Our ancestors may not have been vegan very often, but they were devoted to the need to eat all of an animal and not waste a microgram. And as part of that, the parts of the pig that didn't make very good bacon, like the head um, or the bladder, or the intestines would be reused as other kinds of product. Um, And to this day, people do kind of enjoy things like blood pudding. It's a very British thing. It horrifies Americans. Note that I say British because it's also enjoyed very greatly in Northern Ireland and in parts of Scotland. Um, And that's a perfect example of something that diligently sets out to use up the fat on the pig that might not otherwise have an obvious purpose. Similarly, with all kinds of preserved sausages, and if you've ever eaten um, the kind of tripe sausages that are served in Europe, those used to be served here too, and I'm certainly hoping to see them revived. And that they're important because 
they allow ordinary people to have a reasonably nutritious diet in straitened circumstances. Hoping I'm not sounding like 30p Lee in saying that. What I'm (laughs) saying is that there's a body of knowledge that's actually sort of always a little bit fragile uh, and it's always based on the availability of equipment and it's always based on communities working together that actually does vanish from particular areas from time to time. And it's noted when that happens that their nutrition starts to suffer. And so we get a terrific nutritional crisis um, in First World War recruitment, where it suddenly becomes obvious to the rich that the poor actually aren't eating well at all, and that in fact they're starving. And that's partly to do with rural urban drift, and the fact that very many people who come to the town seeking work aren't able to continue to raise pigs. Lots of people try it in Manchester, so devoted are they to the idea of the pig. But the town ordinances prevent them from having pigs in the town. People don't like the idea of pigs running free in a city street foraging for litter. Um, Pigs can be quite big, ferocious animals, so it's not as appropriate as it was in the countryside. And gradually, all this know-how of what to do with a pig and to do with a pig carcass vanishes. Hmm. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you for taking us through that. Um. As much as I like sausages, I do like to um, also eat sweets. So I am going to ask you about cakes uh, because in preparing for this interview, um, in fact, my mum, who loves food, was very excited about this book and asked me all sorts of questions about it. And I told her a little bit about what the book says about cakes and she was absolutely fascinated. So I have to ask you about cakes because as I learned from the book, they are linked to the supernatural and to religious practice, sometimes at the same time, um, which is really interesting because today cakes don't seem to be linked to either of those. So why were these links there and how did we lose them? It's really sad that we did lose them, but essentially it's to do with the round of the festival year in the church where a cake is a seasonal treat like a Christmas pudding or a roast turkey might be in the modern world. You don't eat cake every day. You eat it when the feast day of your local saint comes round, or you eat it on another kind of festive day, a day, for example, when there's a fair in your town and you want to take your girlfriend for a treat, so you buy her a waffle or a wafer cake as part of having a day out together. There's a whole kind of additional food history about, I guess, we might generally say street food and the role that things like cakes and other treat food play in that, with the result that virtually every area of Britain has its own specialty cake. And there are many English towns where those cakes like Eccles cakes or Banbury cakes are still made and sold. And they would originally have been part of a fairing culture where it's the day that you bring your animals to market to sell um, or the day when you turn up to market to buy made shoes for your family or part of a saint's day. Um, and those those are residual survivals of that kind of cake-eating culture. What we tend to think of as a cake now, like if you describe, if you say the word cake to most people, they tend to imagine something like a Victoria sponge. And that's an incredibly late development because the leavens to make them and the kind of flour that they require and the kind of oven 
that they require are relatively late technological development. So is that how we lost these linkages with supernatural or religious practices that the no, cake the itself changed? I'm afraid the, the big villain of food <laughs> history is the reformation because <laughs> protestantism doesn't really like people to have very much fun or enjoy food mm. very much and it's a bit of a it, it probably is one of the underlying reasons that our food culture constantly needs a degree of reviving um that people aren't encouraged to be comfortable with the idea of a festive calendar at all. And there's an interesting moment where um, Edward VI, Henry VIII's son's parliament literally says, all days are alike God's creatures, by which he means that's it for your cakes. And under no circumstances do you get a special day off to go and eat them. Um, There's actually a line in Shakespeare about no cakes and ale for the virtuous, which refers to this as well. So basically, the Reformation shuts down this entire culture of cake making for festivities and tries also to oust mince pies and the other kind of fun way of raising money for your church, which was for all the local women to make beer. Um, They were called ale wives. And then you had an ale feast where everyone came and bought lots of ale. That was much too much fun couldn't do that anymore um so once it does all sound that, quite fun yeah exactly once all that goes what happens is that it survives but it becomes secularized um so instead of having a particular day when you eat particular cakes there's a tendency for it to become just a thing that you do when you're visiting a particular town um and it's just associated with a region rather than being associated with an with a particular event that keeps it in circulation and so at that point various kinds of cakes start disappearing and kinds of bread too so baked goods start disappearing because there's no reason for the bakers to keep them on and if people instead are demanding madeira cake or ginger cake they make that instead hmm I mean, there could be a whole recipe book of the forgotten cakes and breads, it sounds like. Oh, totally. There are Some people have had a good go at this, actually. Um, and I particularly commend there was a Bake Off contestant who wrote a lovely book that tried to revive some very little known English baking recipes. Um, so you could recommend that to your mum. I'll message you the details later. <laughs> Um, and, and it's a fantastic example of it. But there is a problem, and, and your mum and all of us kind of need to face it, which is we can't exactly replicate the food that was served in 1600 because the ingredients are so different. One really easy example is um, there are early bread recipes. My earliest bread recipe is from the latter half of the 17th century. But the flour I can use to make it is going to be very different from the flour they had available, just in terms of its protein content. So nowadays, when you go and buy bread flour at Tesco, it will be potentially 12 to 14 percent gluten. If you buy a bag of all-purpose flour, ordinary plain flour, it'll probably be 11 percent gluten. But the Bread flour in the Middle Ages and the Tudor period was about 8% gluten. That's much weaker. Why the big change and what difference does it make? Well, to make bread with low gluten flour, you have to be much slower and more patient. The gluten will develop, but you have to give it much, much longer. Virtually all bread now is made with um, an addition of flour that isn't English at all, but that comes from the American wheat belt. So, oddly, you can't actually get English flour 
that's just English, even if you buy it from a local mill, because there will always be an admixture of strong American flour to up the gluten content. And that's, of course, when the ingredients at least um, look the same on paper. There were some examples in the book where we might have a recipe, but we don't actually know what those words meant or our meaning of them is different from what theirs would have been, right? Yeah, absolutely right. Um, And also a lot of them are um, incredibly high context. So they assume actually they're notes rather than a full recipe. And they assume that it's a reminder to you so that you can teach, for example, your new serving maid to make apple moise the way you always have, rather than a way of teaching someone that you're never going to meet how to make apple moise the way you always have. And recipes Mm. now, it's kind of assumed that the people using them won't know the person who set them out on the page. But that wasn't the case in earlier periods, just the opposite. Everyone was taught to cook by another person. And the recipe was really secondary to the face-to-face instruction, which is why you get magnificent recipes that say things like, take water and add to it flour enough. Yeah, flour enough. How much is that? (laughs) Well, that's for you to decide. You have to know. In fairness, my grandmother cooked that way. and, and was only borderline literate, which is one of the reasons she cooked that way. And she just used a pink breakfast teacup to measure everything and would just look at a cake mix and say it needs a bit more flour, it needs a bit more milk, um, and, and just busk it, really. She didn't have a strong sense of structure, but she had a very strong sense of the results she was aiming for. Um, and a lot of a lot of cooks are like that if they're experienced enough. But all cooking was once like that. It wasn't measuring things in tablespoons. It was working out whether the thing was doing what you wanted it to do. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely that would be really hard to learn new recipes that way <laughs> if it was written down with just add enough. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm glad exactly. the recipes have developed. Yeah, exactly. And and it really, it's Eliza Acton who changes the game by producing baking recipes that for the first time are detailed enough that you can make them without further ado. So her, her cookbooks are among the earliest, and they're early 19th century, so pretty late on, where you can actually just make it without having to ask someone what on earth is really going on or what they're really aiming at. <laughs> well, that's a that's helpful, um, yeah. though perhaps yeah. less entertaining. Like well done. Than... She should be more famous and yes, more exactly. loved for this breakthrough. I can't help feeling. Yeah. Yes. No. Very much so. Um, as much as I love cakes and sweets, I do want to move on to another section of the book um, about chicken. This is a quite substantial bit of the book that I found fascinating. Um, you mentioned earlier on that beef. We sort of have this overwrought idea, maybe over-idealized idea about the importance of roast beef. Um, And you've told us a bit about why that is. We've talked about pork and how pig products are still really important. And yet chicken is the most popular meat in England these days. How did chicken come to take the top spot? Well, actually, the change to chicken comes about at exactly the same moment historically, midway through the 17th century, when the English turn away from a breakfast of real ale and protein towards a breakfast of a sweet bun and coffee. And at that 
exact same moment, there's a, a general taste change, a really huge one, where we go from really enjoying deeply umami flavors that are often dark and sour and connected with vinegar and analogous with rye and preserved fish to a taste system that's much more about creamy textures, white flesh, golden crispness, um, and, and an absence of strong taste, actually. And it's at that moment, for very obvious reasons, that chicken becomes a transcendent meat, because chicken meets all those criteria in a way that neither pork nor beef nor lamb can do. Instead, chicken becomes a high-status meat that somehow resonates with people's desire for celebration. Even in my childhood, I can remember that chicken wasn't the everyday meat that it tends to be in many households now. Rather, chicken was what you had on Sunday, and you had a whole chicken rather than just pieces. And it still carries something of that sense of special and also something of that sense of pleasing to everybody, uncontroversial, unproblematic with it today. Um, people who find pork too rich find chicken satisfying. People who think that beef is a problematic food to cook because it, it it has to be cooked to a certain specific, it, do you want it rare? Do you want it well done? How do you actually like it? Are completely satisfied with chicken. It's trouble-free. Um, of course, it isn't trouble-free, really, if you look at its environmental impact. But that's how it became triumphant. And what was it that caused kind of all these things to happen at the same time and this goal of wanting meals that were more essentially chicken-friendly? The mid-17th century was the ending of a massive national crisis, usually called the English Civil War and English Republic, in which England had torn itself apart. The death toll for the British Isles was probably something in the region of 800,000 on a population of three and a half million, making World War One a mere ding. It's usually at and after moments of crisis that other big changes happen. Even with our in our own lifetimes, we've seen big changes after COVID, changes in people's lifestyles, changes in people's diets, changes in the way people shape their careers, all kinds of changes. I don't think we've gotten to a point where we can even analyze them, but it's noticeable. And in exactly the same way, both the civil war and the regicide and the restoration made people think again about what they wanted to be and how they wanted to seem. Moreover, and on a more pragmatic basis, a lot of the taste-making liberal elite class of London had been to Europe on a sort of forced holiday if they were royalist sympathizers, and they came back with more European-inflected tastes. So, for example, the first recorded ice cream recipe comes from Anne Fanshawe, who accompanied her husband and the royal court to Spain, and that's where she picked up how to make ice cream. And ice cream itself kind of exemplifies the food taste I'm describing. It's sweet, it's creamy, it's pale, it's luxe, but it's not meaty. 
in all those ways, it represents a taste fractal that was initially imported, but that came to symbolize the new world that people wanted to create. Mm, Fascinating. Speaking of new worlds, but in this case, one that people were more afraid of, um, tinned food is something that I don't know. I don't necessarily eat very often today. It doesn't seem as common, but is replete. You know, we hear it all the time in stories from the early 20th century in particular. Um, And in a lot of ways, it seems like a cool innovation, right? This idea you've been talking about of preserving meat and making things available when there isn't as much food. And yet you talk about in the book, uh, tinned food was linked in some times uh, as something terrifying, especially if women were eating it. Yeah, Why? or were still <laughs> using it instead of cooking from scratch. I mean, to this day, we kind of have this wacky prejudice um, that everything is supposed to be made from scratch if you're a good mother and housewife. Um And it can often be just bigotry. And I'm going to call out Elizabeth David, who I call out several times in the book, as the origin of a lot of our food self-hatred. She's always telling us off for eating what we eat and liking what we like. So there's her. And the other guilty people are people like T.S. Eliot in The Wasteland, who actually takes the time to stigmatize a typist for having tinned salmon instead of going to the fishmonger. And it just makes me want to break into laughter. How does Eliot imagine that a typist could prepare, you know, in a small flat, a whole salmon from scratch? It's nuts. And you get the sense that he never did it himself either. Um, But yeah, what it is, is a dislike of convenience food. The idea that all good food has to involve more work than other food. In actual truth, tinned food was an enormous breakthrough for very many people because it involved access to a far wider range of food, including fruits and vegetables, than had been available to them before. Um, It's only disliked as part of, I think, the sort of patriarchal idea that women must, above all, slay themselves and be exhausted in the kitchen on a daily basis. Um, And I I think that's for the birds, really. I'd like to consign that one to the historical past, if we might. Um, Conversely, it's interesting that tinned food wasn't developed as a convenience food for women at all, but was developed as part of army strategy initially in France and then in Britain um, to try to feed the armed forces. And this looks really problematic, and there actually was some danger associated with it, if you take into account that, for example, Sir John Franklin's polar expedition is now believed possibly to have died of heavy metal poisoning because the tins were soldered with lead and they ingested so much tin food that they took in too much lead. Not ideal. That seems much more dangerous than a typist having some tinned fish for dinner in her flat. It does indeed, and leave it to you know the society of that time to get the danger wrong. Um, yeah, they, they also worried a lot about tin food and poisoning, food poisoning, and they worried a lot about what they called potomane poisoning, which probably was botulism. And admittedly, that mm. could happen with amateur canning. That's where you put up a pot of vegetables yourself and you don't use enough vinegar. But they didn't worry about that. They worried about manufactured food and food poisoning from that. And that, I think, is just an urban myth. It's a bit like you know the, the tabloid stories of the rat that people found in the Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's, again, just another way of mm. telling you what you ought to eat and what you shouldn't eat, I think. 
Well, speaking of telling people what they should and should not eat, um, obviously, if we're talking about military movements around here, um, let's bring in things like the World Wars and their impact on English food culture, um, because that really is quite massive, both in the moment of rationing, ration books, etc., but also, as you talk about in the book, in the longer term, in the decades after that as well. So can you tell us a bit about the long-term impacts of this rationing? Yeah, it's generally regarded as the reason that our food culture is less good than it could have been um, in the 1940s, 50s and 60s, because rationing in Britain is sustained for much longer than it is elsewhere in the world, um, in part because, and I think this is rather adorable of us, we decide we have to pay back our debt to the Americans. I Sometimes I, I have never looked this up, but I wonder if we're one of the only countries in the world that have ever fully paid back a massive debt. We did. We finished paying it off in 1982. Um, and that's why rationing maybe is not... Maybe the Germans... Yeah, I don't know. Not sure, I'm, though. I'm curious. I'm not sure whether they ever paid back martial aid. And we paid back all of mm. Lend-Lease because we were bonkers, actually. So um, <laughs> all, all kinds of things that weren't rationed during the war were added to rations after the war, including potatoes and bread, which hadn't been rationed when we were actually fighting, but were rationed later to save money. My mother had a wonderful memory of how the windows of grocers like Fortnum's used to have big crates of peaches and gorgeous looking food. And if you went in and asked, you couldn't buy them. They were all for export. Um, that must have been huh. deeply upsetting and deterring for people. Yeah, she said they used to have a saying, St. George for England and everything else for export. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I think that moment was probably the critical one rather than the war itself. And in fairness to um, Walton of Walton Pie fame, actually that man was a miracle worker. Britain very nearly ran out of food altogether in 1918. We were a week away from having no food at all because the rationing system hadn't been run properly or policed properly. Whereas in World War II, we were never anywhere near starvation, though it was pretty grim going. Um, and it, it also brought back some traditional foodways. I particularly love the revival of foraging in World War II. It wasn't all negative. People did have to recover their sense of how they could, how there was food all around them that people had known about once, but that the knowledge of it had been kind of buried and forgotten. Um, but I think what it did do was made eating seem, again, an activity that wasn't meant to be pleasurable. I think the problem was that it, it enhanced our Puritan sense that food was merely fuel, and a whole generation grew up, you know, including, for example, my in-laws, thinking of food as something that you just get over with so that you can get on with something else in your life, and you don't particularly enjoy it, and you don't particularly relish it. Um, and I think that affected an entire generation, actually the generation that are probably in their 80s and 90s now, sometimes spoken of as the silent generation, and a little bit early boomers. But I think we got over it sharply in the 1960s when people suddenly started seeing food as pleasurable again. And unless they're really rather odd, most people still really enjoy food and will talk a lot about how much they enjoy it. They might not enjoy the kind of food that gourmets want them to enjoy or that health p 
people want them to enjoy, but they will really talk with delight about what they do like to eat. And, and that, I think, shows our resilience as a country. We had rationing for a really, really long time, and we've bounced back from it with a fantastic food culture as at the moment at which I speak. English food is in tremendous shape. We're making stupendous cheese, wonderful butter. There's a real depth to our food culture now that wasn't there 30 years ago. It's not just top chefs. It's everywhere. There's a good bakery two miles from me. That would not have been the case even 50 years ago. It's a brilliant renaissance, and I think we should celebrate it. Well, speaking of celebrating it, and of course of things being available all over, um, we've mentioned foraging a few times, and it is sort of in the middle of the book. It's not towards the end, but I wanted to save it towards the end um, as an inspiration, I suppose, for listeners, because you discuss in the book so many cool things that we are still very edible, are still around, but we've forgotten them a bit. So in the interests of spurring people to go look around them and see what might be out there, amongst all the many things that are available, of course, listeners can read the book to get loads of them. What one or two might you recommend for listeners to go out and try and see if they can find now? Oh, that's a hard ask because there are so many fantastic <laughs> things that you could go out and get. But I think I'm going to start because I'm pretty sure it will be available soon with the bread and cheese. This is a hawthorn berry that you wrap in a leaf and they used to call it bread and cheese and school children would eat it on the way to school and on the way home from school. And because they're my children, my children actually took to doing that as well and can tell you what foods you can eat that you pass in a hedgerow. Um, it's, it's nice. It actually tastes, it's not sweet at all. It actually tastes like bread or like very mild cheese and it looks a little bit like gouda. And if you wrap it in the leaf, the leaf is a little bit spicy like a rocket leaf. So it makes a lovely combination with the fruit. So I warmly recommend bread and cheese, aka a hawthorn berry. Make sure it's ripe and obviously common sense, but I'll say it anyway. Don't forage from a busy roadside. Otherwise, you'll be ingesting you know, some pollutants with your bread and cheese and you don't want that. And the other mm. thing I was going to mention in a, yeah, an ample field is buckthorn, um, which, again, people don't know about anymore, but it makes a wonderful salad vegetable. And an easy, lovely thing that you can do is a forage salad where you go along the hedgerow and you pick edible leaves and you end up with a salad with 30 different kinds of leaves in it, all of which are freshly picked rather than the ones from the supermarket that have been bathed in chlorine. Um, so really strongly advise people looking at my book to try doing that. And it's significantly safer and less likely to kill you than foraging for mushrooms if you're inexperienced. Um, people have done that for centuries and by all means, you know, take a mycologist with you. In France, they have a wonderful service where if you pick the mushrooms, you can get them checked at the local pharmacy to make sure that they won't kill you and your relations. We don't do that. But there are many edible leaves. In fact, most leaves are edible. Just stay away from ivy. That's the main poison. And anything that looks like a conifer, don't eat that. But otherwise, most things are lovely and you can really enjoy them. See, now people have got all sorts of ideas. And of course, there's even more in the book. Um, but before I let listeners go off to read it and I let you go back to your lovely life, 
um, would you mind telling us, now that this book is out there for people to go look at, is there anything you might be working on next or have your eye on whether or not it's a book that you'd like to share with us? Oh, thank you. Yes, I am working on a book. Actually, it's called The English at Sea. So it's a follow-up to this book. Um, I got very interested in nutrition at sea because it's a microcosm of general nutrition. And that led me to be interested generally in the English as sailors because, again, we, we are still an island race. And a lot of people are curious about it and they're interested in it. But at the moment... Because we're all, and me included, very uncomfortable about empire and very uncomfortable about colonialism, people haven't found a way to approach it. What I want to do is integrate the history of colonized peoples into the history of English sailors. So, for example, I grew up in Australia and therefore studied Captain Cook and his voyages every year in primary school. And nobody ever mentioned that he had a Polynesian navigator along on his main voyage where he discovered New Zealand and Australia, discovered, quote unquote. And the Polynesian navigator was actually the one who did all the work and had befriended Joseph Banks because they were both interested in astronomy. And they actually exchanged knowledge in this brilliant way because they were both enthusiastic about using the stars as guides. Um, So stories like that, I've become very interested in those in the same kind of way that I'm interested in the food history that isn't all about people wearing ermine, but that's actually about ordinary people. What What was it like to be an ordinary sailor on Drake's circumnavigation of the world. They didn't even know they were going around the world. They thought they were going to the Mediterranean. Um, So, you know, imagine their surprise when the the voyage took years and years (laughs) and they never seemed to get anywhere. Um, So, I mean, just experiences like that fascinate me and that's what I'm writing about. Well, that sounds very exciting. We'll have to have you back to tell us all about it. Um, But in the meantime, of course, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled English Food, A Social History of England Told Through the Food on Its Tables, published in 2022 by William Collins. Diane, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Miranda, for thinking of me and for asking such very intelligent questions. I'm very grateful.